and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, Nat Turner rises up to lead a slave rebellion, and Japan topples to the ground in the wake of a giant laser-breathing lizard. We've got reviews of The Birth of a Nation and Shin Godzilla. Plus, a recap of weeks 6 and 7 of the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League, really rad recommendations, and a completely unsurprising visit by everyone's favorite wayward warrior. But first... Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's me, Hunter Cates, returning to the show to talk about one of my favorite subjects. Longtime listeners know I love Nat Turner. <laughs> I cannot stop talking about Nat Turner, and so I showed up just to talk about the birth of a nation. I oh, can't wait for this. Well, welcome. We're, we're really excited yeah, to have exactly. you have you talk about birth of a nation. But actually, first, before we get to our, our uh, double feature review here, um, thing that I would like to talk about uh, up front is this new service coming out on October 19th called Filmstruck. Have you guys heard of this? Yes, but why don't you bring me up to speed because I'm not 100% certain how much of they're putting onto it. Filmstruck is basically a new streaming collaboration between Turn Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection. And so basically the way it works is, you know, it's like Hulu, it's like Netflix, that sort of thing. But uh, movies curated by Turn Classic Movies and then also the Criterion Channel, the Criterion Collection Channel. Um, so for $6.99 a month, you can get just the TCM uh, films. And I don't know exactly – They've been kind of vague about exactly what's going to be available. I don't know if this is going to be stuff that is sort of in tandem with what's showing on TCM or if they're going to do different features um, and and stuff, you know, like like a little, I could see them doing with it being October doing, you know, maybe a horror feature section and stuff. I did actually have the fortune of getting on the beta for this. So I've I have played around with a little I've watched a, a bit on it. Um, the thing that's nice is they, they actually have, you know, they'll have introductions. They'll have little pieces like that. Like you get on TCM. Now, when you say introductions, cool. you mean Robert Osborne introductions, I hope. I think there was some Robert Osborne. There was more like Ben Mankiewicz. Um, uh, that'll do. I mean, yeah, for six ninety nine a month, you can't complain, right? You have to upgrade to get a, to get, there needs to be a Robert Osborne upgrade. Yeah. So, so here's the thing with, with the base, Six ninety nine a month Filmstruck subscription. You can also add Criterion Collection for a uh, cumulative ten ninety nine a month. So for ten ninety nine a month, you get all the TCM Filmstruck stuff. You also get Criterion Collection Channel. Or I, I feel I feel like I'll be able to afford that because I'll be canceling Hulu. So it yeah. it, it really rolls right together. Right. Um. Because whenever this was first announced several months ago, the at least whenever it's in its you know kind of fetal stages, I didn't think they had the TCM catalog. I thought it was exclusively Criterion. The fact that this, they have the TCM catalog, mm -hmm. there's no reason not to do this. Well, and this is going to be a revolving door of of stuff, from what I understand. You know, they're they're constantly going to be adding and taking stuff off, which is why I think they're probably going to be doing some curation of of stuff. Like whenever I was doing the beta, they had you know a curated like. Uh, political documentaries section and, you know, things, things like that, where it's, it's sort of uh, in some way uh, relative to, to time or to just a theme that they mm -hmm. want to explore. Right. And then there's, and, and then there's, you know, some of them actually had commentary. Some of them had, you know, th so there's additional stuff, additional features that you don't really get on a, on a streaming service. So this is, this is going to sound backwards because the thing about streaming is you have so much choice, but if they do curate it, I'm actually excited about that because mm -hmm. the choice paralysis is one of the main things that stops me from just sitting down and watching a movie sometimes. Yeah. I think it's a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if they have a good list, let's just say it's five or 10 political documentaries or whatever it is. Yeah. Then I might legitimately go, oh, this is cool. Let me watch one. Let me watch another one. Yeah. Well, and that's that's the best thing that I've I saw with the beta was the way that they sort of broke down like they had like you could look at everything or everything in a genre. But then they also had like, here's uh, here's a curated section of uh, Kira Kurosawa or Truffaut or, um, you know, Italian neorealism or whatever. Um, so a, also, a couple. Also, I'm going to be honest with with the intros in front of them. I could watch uh, just the introduction and decide if I wanted to watch the movie mm-hmm. with someone telling me this is why you might enjoy this movie. This is what's interesting about this movie. Well, and at least for me, like the TCM introductions on Turner Classic Movies is a thing that like would suck me into movies quite a bit. Like exactly. I would I would you know catch the end of something and then um, be like, oh, well, I'll see what's up next. And then Robert Osborne would come on and spend five minutes explaining something like, oh, gosh, I got to see how this plays out. Oh, this 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 is the role that revitalized Elizabeth Taylor's career. I had no clue. Let me let me see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I love about this, it kind of sounds like the Sega channel of, of classic <laughs> movies. But what I really love about this is, isn't this what we dreamed about back in when we were 10 is like, man, I, it really sucks, even though we weren't paying for cable. If we had cable, it was our parents. We were just kind of thinking, why can't I just get the channels I want? And mm-hmm. it's happening. You know, it's happening before yeah. our eyes. And, and we'll see how it. So a, a few things. One, um. So I mentioned six ninety nine for TCM, ten ninety nine a month for TCM and Criterion Channel. Or this is the thing that I actually really like: you can do a an annual subscription for ninety nine dollars a month. So that's that's a good. I mean, that's like eight bucks and some. I change. feel like ninety nine dollars a month is overpriced. I would pay ninety nine a year. I'm, I'm sorry, a year. That is exactly <laughs> what I meant. I don't know, man. I mean, when you consider how much Blu rays cost, how much cable costs, et cetera. I mean, even ninety nine a month would be a value, but. Obviously, a year is much much better. I feel like you're you're now pitching this as like a like a public radio pledge drive or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, yeah, get I'm actually, to- you get a tote bag as well. I'm a I narc think. for TCM. Is is <laughs> so now you guys know. Um, I'm going but, the other way. I feel like it should be twenty five dollars a month, but they should send me a random Criterion Blu-ray each month. Oh, that'd be great. Like the like those vinyl uh, subscriptions yeah, where it's vinyl like, me I, or whatever yeah. it's called. Yeah. Um, okay, but there are there are some caveats with this. Criterion is saying that this is going to be the single. Uh, largest collection of their stuff in a single place ever available on streaming. So that's good. Um, because I mean, Hulu has had a lot of great stuff. There's, there have also been things that I've wanted to see that haven't been there. I saw some stuff, some, um, and I can't think of titles off the top of my head right now, but I, I saw some stuff on the beta that wasn't available on Hulu. That was kind of either stuff that they, um, had only released on DVD that they actually had, um, updated but hadn't released a blu-ray but you could rent it on itunes or whatever that were in hd that uh that's really nice but they they have said that it is going to be uh still revolving so some stuff will come on some stuff will leave but i imagine there's still going to be a base core there as well um another caveat so initially coming out so this this comes out uh, probably, I mean, maybe even the day that this, uh, this episode drops October, October 19th, which I believe is Wednesday. Um, it will only be available on, uh, Android phones and tablets, iOS phones and tablets, Amazon fire TV, um, starting the 19th in November. They haven't said when in November, it'll be available on Apple TV to stream. And then they've said that it's coming soon to Chromecast and Roku. No set date there. So here, this is this is the one thing that I have to complain about this giant bucket of greatness is it still kind of feels like they're sort of in beta mode. Like it almost feels like 
proof of concept. And that's, that's what, you know, doing, doing the beta, that's sort of what it felt like. It felt like they hadn't quite gotten everything worked out. Like it looked pretty, but it wasn't necessarily fully fleshed out in content and all of that. Right. Well, and we have to consider is this isn't like HBO, wherever they have new content. This is all stuff that's been around for a long time. It's just in a single spot. So they're probably not a hundred percent sure how big of an audience there is for it. Because this is this is a they're, they're, this well, is a massive undertaking, and and Criterion has done they did the Criterion Channel, which was like you subscribed and then could stream stuff off of their website. Probably five years it was before they did the Hulu deal. Um, so this is sort of a continuation of that thing. So they've been trying to get you know a strong foothold in the streaming side for a while, but it's always been either. It was a little daunting when it was on their website and then the partnerships didn't with Mm -hmm. initially Netflix and then Hulu didn't really do exactly what they wanted because it was just basically the movies like this gives you this gives you the criterion level of you get the extra content, you know, featurettes, commentary, all those sorts of things, which um, so, yeah, it's we'll we'll see who turns out. I mean, I feel like at at a price point that competes with Hulu and Netflix, it's. It'll be interesting to see if the people who are, you know, turning out to spend twenty to forty dollars on a Criterion disc will turn out to spend, you know, eight dollars and some change a month for this. Yeah, I, I think, think the bigger question is: Are the people who are interested in Criterion movies interested in watching them on their desktop, Android, or iOS device? Well, and that, that's uh, where I'm saying that it still feels like it's sort of in beta. Like if this right. is if this was available on basically everything, and and by that I mean. Chromecast, Roku, but then also PS3, PS3 or 4, PS4, um, whatever, whatever other, other set-top boxes or, you know, the, the standard things that people use. If it was immediately available there, I'd say this is absolutely a no-brainer. I'm personally going to hold off until it's available where I can get it regularly on my TV without having to bend over backwards. Well, bear in mind this is already a no-brainer because as part of the Criterion Collection now, anytime, anywhere, you can st- you can stream Godzilla. Allegedly. We don't Allegedly, know. We, yeah. we, we don't know. And I, I guess the, the other thing that I left out that I should say is all Criterion will be leaving Hulu on November 11th. So really, you have until then to stream Il Surpasso and uh, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion? No, that that's absolutely right. And and that's like a if, if you subscribe to Hulu for the Criterion Collection stuff, which I know a lot of I think mm-hmm, yeah. all three of us initially did. Um, then you have until the 11th to get it there. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's going to disappear, move to a new home. Okay. Coming up next, we have a review of the 2016 Sundance grand jury prize winner, the birth of a nation. Does writer, director, actor, producer, Nate Parker's passion project have the legs to be a serious contender at next year's Academy Awards, or is it simply this season's first chummy piece of Oscar bait? Find out next. Your slaves sure do know how to behave. Well, they got Ben. One of them's a preacher. People might pay good money to have them calm down a bit, especially by one of their own. I lead you to Peter 218. Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I'm that. What you think you're doing, boy? I asked you a question. You done preaching for a little while. You learned your lesson well. Oh yes. I've learned. To watch a strong man broken down. 
It's a terrible thing. The Lord's spoken to me. Visions of what's to come. A rise of good against evil. What are we gonna do? We'll fight. But once it begins, our brothers and sisters are joined. And we'll number in the hundreds, thousands even. While the Oscars So White controversy was blowing up Hollywood earlier this year, Fox Searchlight was in Park City, Utah, laying down an unprecedented $17.5 million for the birth of a nation. Nate Parker's provocatively titled film about the 1831 Virginia slave revolt, led by a slave and Baptist preacher named Nat Turner. Parker, who spent nearly a decade trying to get this picture produced, left Sundance with the Audience Award and the festival's top honor, the Grand Jury Prize. And Fox Searchlight no doubt hopes Parker's passion project will see some notable nominations and abundant acclaim when the Academy Awards announce their picks for the 89th awards ceremony early next year. So Jake, I'm curious. While responses out of Park City were generally glowing, audiences and critics don't appear to be quite as enamored with the picture as we roll into the beginning of prestige season. Do you think The Birth of a Nation stands a fighting chance to be remembered by the Academy come early January? And furthermore... As anyone who's glimpsed at the closing credits of this film knows, Nate Parker had a hand in essentially all aspects of the picture's production. So what do you think of Parker's auteurist aesthetic? Uh, well, f- uh, about the credits real quick. Did it did it feel to you like you were watching a John S. Rabb movie right at the end? <laughs> the, the, <laughs> um, there, there, were, there were two thoughts that went through my head. Uh, neither of them were great. One was John S. Rad. The other was like college student film. Wait, John S. Rad isn't a great. Well, not in, not in this context. I mean, I love John. I love Dangerous Men, but I also don't want Dangerous Men to ever be considered for. You know, it's not a prestige picture. All right, it's well, that's a, where me and you differ. We're just going yeah, to have to. I thought I knew you, Chris Gallagher. I guess I don't. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's so. Yeah, I, I I guess let's start let's start with that question because I think we'll naturally kind of get into the the other question about is this a is this a prestige picture? Is this a Academy contender, et cetera? Um, what do you think about Nate Parker? I mean, this, this movie exists because he wanted to tell this story. Um, what do you, do you think he did that? Well, I thought, I thought he, I thought he did. Okay. Um, I, I saw this picture with my girlfriend and we both left out saying like, it never set like the emotional hook deep enough for me to really care by the end. And I, and I liked a lot of it. Mm-hmm. But it just didn't quite work as well as I would have liked it to work. I I feel generally like I don't know. I coming out of this movie, I felt a little bit like I did with Snowden, where it's like I was excited to see a movie about this subject mm-hmm. because it's it's a story worth telling. It's a story with inherent drama and conflict built in. Uh, but I feel this is this is a worse movie than Snowden in its in its actual accomplishments and it's actual. And, and here's the other thing I think, you know, coming out of Sundance hearing that, you know, it got a standing ovation, but it, I think it got a standing ovation before the film even began, but um, it, you know, it, it got a standing ovation. It won grand jury prize. It seemed like this was, you know, people were loving this movie and it seemed, it seemed provocative. That was the thing for me is like hearing there's this movie about Nat Turner's slave rebellion and it's called birth of a nation, which is very intentionally just, rubbing you know hollywood's face in its history that got me excited i thought okay this is going to be provocative this is going to be interesting this is going to be challenging 
I feel I feel like when they did the rewrite on the D.W. Griffin script for this, they changed a lot. It's not like I remember that movie. No, it's I, not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it, I mean, there's nothing. It, this seems like the salad bar prestige movie. You know what I mean? Well, having not seen it, the, the takeaway that I'm getting so far is that this lacked a singular vision. This is more just a, a working man's I, drama picture. I don't know if it necessarily lacked a singular vision. It lacked I what honestly what I think would have benefited it is if Nate Parker would have had the foresight to instead of saying like I'm going to I'm going to write the script. I'm going to do everything cuz I think of of the things that he, you know, writing, directing, acting and producing it's a little harder to say on producing he got i mean i guess you can say he got a pretty good cast he got it made he got he, it made and, and, and he sold got it, it for 20 million dollars he, yeah. he got it made i mean and and if you look in the the thanks like he thinks like there's mel gibson's in the in the thank yous um i, I think spike lee like there's a lot of people who helped mm-hmm. out chipped in in some way um so he you know i i imagine he worked the rooms and that that sort of thing too yeah to to get it made but i think his acting is the best thing about it i think he would have definitely benefited from someone else writing the script my biggest problems all come from dialogue and story um i know that it's based on a true story but i still found it unbelievable that army hammer's real name is army hammer and just in real life that's that's not true well, that I think part of the actually, felt like a lot. It's actually Armand Hammer. It's in because so, that was his grandfather's name. His uh, family actually originates from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Believe it or not, but, is that uh, true? Yeah, yeah. The, we the, the little little tidbits. I think that, that's uh, been on the episode before. Yeah, I've that, talked about that's this been on, the on an episode before. Yeah, um, but it, it's uh, yeah. I I found it to be I found it to be a disappointment. Frankly, like it's it's not a terrible movie. It's sort of exactly what I expect when I see. You know, come late, uh, late summer when these, you know, fall movie trailers start to come out. It's what I expect when I see those of just like, oh, well, the the baby boomers, retired baby boomers are going to go see this at the whatever art house and think, oh, I saw a wonderful film. But it's like, it's fine. It's a retired baby boomer movie. <laughs> Take away. Yeah. So you didn't care much for the writing. What about the direction? The direction was, I mean, it... It could have been directed by Brett Ratner. It was, <laughs> it was, it there, I mean, no, but it did the really, dream sequences work. Did they work for you? No, they didn't work at all. And here's, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't have that in my notes, but that was one of the things that I thought was so wasted is there's these dream sequences throughout where, um, he sort of, he sees these things that appear like a little supernatural or a little, you know, like. Uh, they're, they're dreamy. There's, there's a girl with angel wings that appears a couple times. There's this like stock of corn that starts bleeding. Um, there, it's sort of has the feel of like an ethereal Terrence Malick, uh, imagery, but he never does anything with them. He gives you one single image and then moves on. It, it was like, it, it was like, uh, in man of steel when you get like a few <laughs> moments that feel kind of Terrence Malicky. And then it's like, Oh, back to back to guys punching each other. Just, um, just enough to know that, Hey, look how artsy we're being. Well, it, it, it look at how artsy we are trying to be. And that's the, like, I, I feel like had he, kind of explored that more it would have been more interesting right i liked that they were there i liked that he chose to put them there and i liked some of the visuals but when they showed them a second and third time they kind of lost well and they they never they never come together to mean anything there's never any like real solid symbolism that he pulls out of it it's just sort of like oh look it is it's a little artsy fartsy and so to, to answer your question about direction hunter i think 
I think he directed the movie that he intended to direct because he wrote the movie. So he had the whole idea in his mind, but that that's sort of my problem is I wish, I wish he would have gone to someone else who could have made the story more interesting and then, uh, you know, handed it, either handed it back to him and he tries to direct that or also have someone else direct and he just produces an ax. What a lovely segue. Cause you mentioned two people who we credited with helping make this movie. Very provocative figures. What if this were directed by a Mel Gibson or a Spike Lee? Um, I, I, I don't know with, with Mel Gibson. I think Spike Lee, it would have been, I, I, I would like Spike Lee's more because I think I would have at least gotten the, uh, provocative nature of it. Um, I, I just looked it up. It wasn't Spike Lee that I was thinking of. It was George Lucas, actually. Um, and we're not going to get in the whole white slavers conversation right. th- th- about, but, um, George Lucas, no, it wouldn't have been better. Uh, Mel Gibson, a lot, more, may- a lot more CG. I think if it would have been directed by Mel Gibson, we would have had less controversy surrounding the creator of the film. <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother where I, I don't want to touch that here. That's not for the Hacksaw that, Ridge review. That's completely, that's completely separate from anything to do with the, the film itself. But, um, no, I, I think, I think in the hands of a, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, Scorsese doesn't write his own films because he knows that he, that is not his strength. Um, but he still, as the director and producer kind of helps craft the story and has a lot of input. I think that would have been better because there, there are so many missed opportunities here. I think the pace is all wrong. The scale is all wrong. The focus is always on the slightly on the wrong thing. Um, from like, there's a few times when people are wandering around like, uh, plantation or whatever. And you're supposed to know that, Oh, this is the outskirts or, um, that sort of thing. But you only get it in dialogue because they don't, they don't really, ever lay anything out for you. You don't, you don't get a lay of the land. Um, and then there's like probably the, the biggest downfall for me. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear what you think of this, Jake, but the, there's a montage in about the, the middle of it where, uh, Nat Turner goes on, um, sort of this preaching, um, for, for a few years, he goes around preaching to, to all these slaves on plantations and it's just sort of like you see him preaching here, you see him preaching there. And then it's sort of concluded with years later because he's like gotten married and had a kid and the kid is like walking around, running around. You know, it's a toddler, at least by this point. Years later, he goes to this plantation and you get immediately you get the like, oh, this slave owner is really bad. Like Army Hammer, he's not great, but he's not like he's not the worst guy. And it's this guy's. I, like, oh, I almost he, thought the portrayal of Army Hammer's character was really, really light. Well, I, I think we can get into that as well. I think they did like he tried to make it like, oh, well, he was an alcoholic and that was part of his downfall. Um, but it was literally just like, oh, look, he's in bed with a bottle. What a drunk. Like they it, it was very, very melodramatic, very like soap opera y in, in that, that way. But when they go to this, they go to this plantation, it's the only place where they actually spend any time. Otherwise it's just like shot of him preaching, shot of him preaching, shot of them roaming around. And you get that, you get that scene where, um, basically there are a few slaves in this, like, what would you call it, Jake? Like a, like a, a shack, a like yeah, dark it- shack. And like a solitary confinement room or something yeah. is almost what, but it was more like a dungeon, really yeah. how they were chained up. They're, they're being held. They're chained up. They have like masks on their face. There's like, it's clear that they've been there for days. They've probably, they're probably in their own, uh, you know, they've probably soiled themselves and they, they've just been sitting there. They're trying to force feed a guy and they end up brutally like 
just bashing out his teeth. And that functions as the breaking point, or it's supposed to function as the breaking point. And I felt like that was so false in like, if he was actually going around seeing, seeing life on all these other plantations, it's not going to be just a single moment, a single encounter that flips a switch for him. I was fine with all this slavery till they popped that one guy's teeth out. Now I'm really upset. Is yeah. what it kind of came off like. Yeah. So is that an actual line of dialogue? <laughs> no, it would have been more poorly written. Uh, yeah, it would have been way more poorly written. I mean, there there is some really bad dialogue. Like when when his wife uh, explains that, and and that's another thing as far as like convincing like the whole the relationship with his wife. The he never really spends time on it. Expect except to say he had a he has a wife and she had a baby. Oh, and she got beaten. And like it's only when it's convenient for the story. Like when she says that she's pregnant, she comes up to him and she says, we're having a baby. And he says, a baby. And she just says, you mad. And that's about it. And then they move on and then they have a kid. I don't remember how that ended. (laughs) No, exactly. And another thing talking about his wife and direction and all that, you pointed out that um, the kid grew up and that's how you knew time passed. Well, the Uh direction obviously was not great because I felt like he had been preaching for a month. I never, I, I didn't gather that he had been preaching for years. And when you pointed it out, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, well, and that's, that's not the only place with that problem either, because it, it was literally only like she's pregnant and then he's preaching some. And I thought the same thing. And then I see the kid, I'm like, oh, this has been years. And yeah. that's the only, which is like, if it was handled a, just a little bit different, I would be, I would say it was sort of brilliant, but there's not enough. Like it just sort of flies through with no real focus. Um, another place where that happens is whenever this is the other like major turning point in his life when, um, army hammer, I can't remember his character's name, uh, Turner, um, Samuel ha- Turner, Samuel Turner. He has this big party. Um, it's basically he's since his father has died, the Turner name has been, uh, sort of on the downward slope. And so he throws this big party like daddy used to do. I, I believe he says to, uh, try to, you know, turn the turn, make the Turner name big again. And this culminates in, um, the, the most racism you see out of Samuel Turner, um, probably in the entire movie and a, uh, is it his wife that it, that gets raped? Um, uh, I don't think or, it was his, no, or it's his... not his wife. It's another, uh, it culminates in another woman, um, basically getting called out, uh, from, you know, the home and then, and then raped used as a, just used as a whore. Um, and that's another, that's another moment. And then, and then his wife getting beaten as well is another, but, uh, it's, it's like all just there for convenience. When his wife gets beaten, I thought she was dead. Like you don't see her, you see her beaten, you see her all, you know, puffed up and everything. And you don't see her for another like 20, 20 minutes to a half hour in the movie. I thought she had died. And then she just shows up and it's like, oh, she's, she, she's still recovering, but she's made it like just, I don't know. He didn't, he didn't handle the stuff. Well. And then, and then we finally get to the rebellion and it is like, it, it sort of seems like everyone's just like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then they do it and then it's over. Did you find it too convenient, Chris, that I'm pretty sure, and it may have been that I got confused here, but that one, uh, slave catcher, the one played by, uh, Jackie Earl Haley. Yeah. Um, that he seemed to be everywhere and like the only bad guy. I, I, I see what you're saying. And I, I like what he was trying to do with that. He was trying to build this through line with him where, because he's there when, um, Nat Turner's father 
kills a couple of the uh, the slave hunters and takes off in the very beginning when he's a boy. Mm-hmm. And there's a great little moment there that that they uh, that they create where uh, he comes into the house. Jackie Earl Haley Haley's character, the the slave hunter, comes into the house, and Nat Turner, as a boy, looks him directly in the eye and says, "I don't know where he is. I don't, you know, he he went off." And Jackie Earl Haley uh, kind of instills in him, like, "Why are you looking at me? It's disrespectful for you to look at me." And that initially functions as that teaches him, do not look at a white man. And then as he begins to um, get more rebellious and as he encounters his, him, you know, four or five times throughout, um, he begins to first, he just gives him like side eye as he walks by. And then by the end, he's just directly looking at him, like defying him saying, I'm looking at you, you, you know, I, I don't respect you anymore. Basically that almost works. But you're right. He's only used, he just sort of pops up here and there and he's only used once again for convenience. Um, I thought, I thought his performance was good. No, he, he, he did fine, but it was just, he was there with the dad. And then I think, I think he was the one who raped Nat Turner's wife. And then he was there at the fight at the armory at the end. And it was just a little mm-hmm, too convenient mm-hmm. and it didn't feel like symbolic enough or that it had anything else going on. Just sort of like then a bad guy shows up. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and he's he's the snidely whiplash of this melodrama. He's the the bad 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 guy. Uh, Army Hammer is sort of a little like you have a little bit of sympathy for him, but he's still he's still a bad dude, sort of a thing. And then like I mean, it's I I would still honestly I would still be perfectly fine with someone else making a more definitive Nat Turner movie. That's how I feel coming out. Well, of this. yeah, because basically what it sounds like you guys are saying is that Nate Parker tried to Orson Welles this and do everything yeah. himself and be the young, hungry filmmaker who is able to accomplish an, a, a masterpiece on his own. It sounds like this story, not just Nat, Nat, Nate Parker being limited, and maybe he is, but it sounds like this story is something that needs to be the work of a master filmmaker who's honed his craft and knows what he's doing. This isn't the work of a hungry young filmmaker. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Like, yeah. I, and, and, you know, I didn't care too much for, I know they're very different movies. They're the only like connection is um, that they're movies about slavery, but I didn't honestly didn't care too much for 12 years a slave. I thought um, for a Steve McQueen movie, it felt a little flaccid, like, um, I, I had the same sort of feeling, um, with that, where it was like, oh, it's a little, it's a little too, you know, the guy that made shame that made hunger. I was about to say shame certainly wasn't flaccid. Wink, wink. Oh, oh. Gosh. <laughs> um, but no, it, 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 it was a riveting film, but for Steve McQueen, it felt like it, it was a little safe. I would love to see what someone like Steve McQueen would do with this sort of a visual stylist, someone who is not, uh, concerned with being too provocative or too, um, you know, pushing, pushing the boundaries and, and allowing his audience to question what, because the other thing that we haven't talked about at all is the violence in this movie. There's, um, he tries to go for nuance a little bit in that it's this thin line between what is, what is straight up murder and what is revenge and what is justifiable and what is not. And he only briefly touches on it. And he kind of honestly gets a little, uh, schizophrenic with, you know, he, Nat Turner, when the rebellion first starts, I guess spoilers, because if you don't know the rebellion, Nat Turner, it, it doesn't end well, but they rebel and kill a bunch of slave slavers. Um, uh, he gets his revenge very, very brutally. And then no more than like three or four minutes later, he tells, he tells someone else, this is not about revenge. <laughs> um, 
And I, I think part of that is like he, after, after he gets his revenge, he realizes that it's not satisfying. He has a visceral moment where he, he goes and he vomits and he sort of like, what did I just do? You know, it's sort of like Batman finally getting his revenge. And then like, what do I do now? Um, well, and I, I liked that, uh, to some, I liked the idea of that scene because it was showing that, um, Nat Turner wasn't a murderer. He wasn't just this bloodthirsty person. He was a person mm-hmm. with morals and all this other stuff. But I don't think it's ever really explored. It's never like it was. It's, it's he never like gets any deeper than a that. A convenient, a convenient little epilogue there. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, let's backtrack to the first question. Do you guys think that this belongs in the Academy Award Best Picture race? Because I think it will be inevitably. Do you think it belongs there? And how far do you think it goes? I don't think it belongs. I just and it may get it may get a nomination, but I don't think it'll be a serious contender. I I at this point I'm really not sure. Um, so a couple I guess last week, um, our buddy Adam Shitwood put up an article for he's you know started writing about the Oscar beat, um, called early early best picture predictions, and uh, he laid out ten that he thinks are probably the most likely. And it's not in there. It's he's got 12 years a slave listed in the in the mix, which is like an 11 through 15. And it's number 15 for him. Um, and granted, I know I know Adam didn't care much for Birth of a Nation, but uh, I, I think this is more his, uh, you know, he looks at the industry. He looks at sort of what people are within Hollywood are saying and, and what they're. He's got 12 years a slave listed. Did I say twelve years a slave? Birth of a Nation. At yeah, number 15. he really. Excuse Adam me. doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> this is an old article. Now that I look at it, um, no, sorry, Birth of a Nation at, at number fifteen. He's got up the top five: La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, Fences, uh, Jackie, and Moonlight. Um, so, and I think you know we didn't really we haven't really gotten into the whole like Oscar so white from last year and how that may have affected, you know, the bidding war for this at Sundance because it was happening at the same time. I think Moonlight, which is a movie that has just come out of, um, I believe it played at Telluride and maybe at Toronto as well, been getting glowing reviews, looks great. Um, that could be the one that, you know, if, if there is a, the conversation goes to it, which it inevitably will, um, that could be the film that is more highlighted as the, like, uh, response to Oscar so wide and, and Hollywood trying to be like, Oh no, look, we are inclusive. Um, and I think it's interesting that he put fences up there because the first trailer I saw for fences was last night before, uh, this picture. And I actually, in my notes wrote that fences, uh, Denzel was more likely to get a best actor nomination for his performance in that trailer than Nate Parker in this film. Like that was the trailer for it was even really, really powerful and almost more powerful mm-hmm. than anything except one of Nat Turner's uh, preaching scenes that I thought was really good. Which which scene are you referring to? Is it the dinner scene um, in Fences or in the film? In in uh, in uh, not Birth of a Nation. No. Yes. Birth, <laughs> Birth of a Nation. Nation. Um, I thought the dinner scene was pretty good. I. I actually almost liked every time he's he did a good job at that part of the role. See, I thought the dinner scene, the dynamic there was interesting because this is this is the party where uh, Samuel Turner has everyone over and he has he basically wants to show off his preacher slave. And so he has him pray over the dinner and he does this. This is probably the most like interesting thing that uh, Nate Parker does throughout the entire film is he basically has him giving this uh giving this little mini sermon prayer and he is speaking to uh these 
antebellum white folks at the dinner table in one context. And then he is also speaking to the help, the servants, the slaves in a completely different context with the same text. And, and, and yeah, the verses can go either way and the camera really served to show how, yeah, you could, you that. could see how each of them was gathering something different from the exact same, uh, from the exact same text, from the exact same, uh, little, little prayer. And yeah. that was really interesting. So takeaway, I think once again, is that Nate Parker has good ideas. He has, he's, he's got interesting ability, but he was not ready to do this movie. This is not the movie you start your career on. This would be like a Kira Kurosawa starting with seven samurai or something <laughs> like that. He needed to make 10 movies before he made this. And one. and I think he needed more help. He needed to bring other people who are maybe a little more capable in certain areas in to assist him in making this film mm-hmm. is my opinion. Well, what will assist you, Chris, whenever you see this again? And of course, I mean, beer was, um, I honestly, I don't know if I ever will see this movie again. There's not, there's <laughs> well, and it's not, it's, it's a, I'm, I'm on the side of like, I don't think this is a great movie. Um, I think it is a story that was worth telling and it's told pretty poorly. Um, so this, this pick is kind of a weird one. Um, but it has, it has a few connections a little bit. So I'm going to go with uh briefcase Brown, which is a Brown ale from coop ale works in Oklahoma city. And briefcase Brown is a really wonderful Brown ale. Um, but it's a, and, and that's so like, like the story of Nat Turner, it's a, it's a, it's a story worth telling. This is a beer worth drinking, but it has a caveat. It's like three point. And so it's not going to satisfy you if you are looking for a alcoholic beverage to, you know, inebriate you a bit. Um, and that's sort of what we got, what we got here. There's a, there's a bit of a switcheroo with this film. I feel like it's, it's bare minimum of what you need for it to be classified as a beer. And, and granted, like, honestly, if I'm at a place that only serves three point beer, because we are in Oklahoma and we still have those, those, you know, issues like briefcase Brown is probably the best pick that I'm, I'm going to be able to find. It's very, it's very good. The story of Nat Turner is very good, but on the side of it being classified as a beer, it's barely a beer. This is barely a movie. Um, so that, that's my, my, my pick. It's briefcase Brown from Coop Ale works. Uh, check it out, uh, pick up a six pack and maybe drink the whole thing when you're watching this on HBO and like a year, there's your poster quote, ladies and gentlemen, the birth of a nation is barely a movie. <laughs> The Birth of a Nation is currently playing nationwide. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break with a recap of last week's Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League box office and a review of Shin Godzilla, where Hunter gushes like a little girl with a year's worth of pinup geekdom.
And now time for the bi-weekly Fantasy Movie League recap. First, we have to do some retractions and apologies from last episode. In week five, we declared an early victory for film school dropout. But when the final results came in, she was leapfrogged by the School of Rock Cineplex, run by longtime listener Phil Lucia. Apologies, Phil, and congrats on your top 100 overall finish. Sorry, Phil. Congratulations. Yeah, and congratulations are in order because that's top 100 out of, uh, I think it's over 25,000 Cineplexes on Fantasy Movie League. Yeah, that's that's pretty impressive. He sent a screenshot of this uh, when it when it happened. I didn't believe him. Yeah, I, I I was doing research for this and I went and double checked all of it. But I think he was tied for ninety third. <laughs> uh, but if you're in our league, you did not need a top one hundred overall finish to beat at least one of our hosts in week six, as yours truly turned in the lowest performing box office of our league with a measly fifty five million dollars. Lesson learned. Birth of a Nation is not the box office juggernaut I thought it would be. Yeah, Jake, when I saw your uh, your lineup, I was a little surprised that you put, how many did you have, like three or four? Hold on, let me scroll all the way down to the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, I have I have four Birth of a Nations. Man, four, okay. So, yeah, th- this surprised me because I think, well, now, you know, as you can tell from our, our review that we just had, um, I'm certainly questioning whether it has prestige quality at all. But Birth of a Nation, I think I had one on my Cineplex for, for week five because I feel like it's the type of movie that if it does end up doing well and making bukus, it's not going to do it in its first week. It's going to do it when it gets the traction, you know, in like late November, early December, something like that. So that was a ballsy move. And uh, clearly it, it didn't pay off this time. It did not pay off. I don't, I don't, mm, I'm not standing by that one. Also, I thought the movie was going to be better. I, I thought it would appeal to socially what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. It would be something that people really got out of the house and saw. It, it, it wasn't any of those things. And if I had seen the movie, if we had a screener, I wouldn't have put it. Yeah. Well, and the other the other thing is that it. I feel like it hasn't been promoted that much. No. So yeah. I I don't think you know like I don't think my parents are aware of it. Um. And uh, if they are, it might be because of the controversy surrounding it and not because of the actual merits of the film or a marketing right. campaign or anything like that. Right. So, and it, it turns out that the film only grossed $7 million on its $157 price tag while a much cheaper Storks and Magnificent Seven brought in eight and $9 million respectively. So no Midnight Warriors could sniff the $80 million perfect Cineplex anchored by five screen showing masterminds. Uh, but then again, that's not a movie I have even seen a trailer for. I've seen the trailer for it. I feel like I've seen the trailer for it a few times in the theater. Uh, it's it's that one with Zach Galifianakis and I think Jason Sudeikis and Kristen Wiig are in it as well. And they're like bank robbers or something. Like It basically looked like Horrible Bosses 8, but with <laughs> a slightly different cast. I, I um, liked hor- I liked horrible bosses, uh, but I could I could see where a comedy could fit in right now because I don't know the last good really good one that came out. It, it's so. the type of movie that I think in a different like last year I probably would have put. I I don't think I ended up with any of it in my in my cineplex for the week. I was back and forth like I always am. I had it on for a little while and ended up taking it off. I think I would have believed in it more in a year where things seem to be making money. But it seemed mm-hmm. like the type of film to me that would um, just fly by the wayside. And so I didn't end up using it. Uh, I don't watch a lot of TV because uh, I use Hulu or Netflix or whatever. Yeah. And I, I browse just, you know, the things I browse on the Internet. And if I don't hear of a movie, I assume it's not going to do well because their marketing has not penetrated me. 
Right. Uh, I have to sometimes remind myself that I am not the general public and I'm not making the Cineplex I want to watch. Uh, that That's the constant battle for me. And then I realize I have no idea, like even the, the person in my mind that I think is the general viewing public, I have no idea who that person really is. I, I know. It's like I want to pick somebody out of my office and just go up to him and be like, what movies did you hear are coming out this week? What looks <laughs> what, good? What sounds good? So I don't know if that's the strategy our week six winner used, but I want to say congratulations to Nick Cage's Movie House and Eatery. Uh, and this time we were smart enough to record after the final results are out. Uh-huh. And Do you know who Nick, who that is? Uh, yeah, this is Mitch Lane. He's a buddy uh, that I work with, and he actually said that he was looking forward to the shadow on the pod. So uh, there you go, Mitch. Uh, congratulations and uh, quite a quite a victory. You've you've had a few rough weeks, but uh, you beat us all this time. Yeah. So for week seven, the perfect Cineplex was almost equal parts The Accountant, Don't Breathe, and another movie that I have not seen the trailer for, Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life. And that Cineplex netted about $73 million. Okay, so Middle School, The Worst Years of My Life is a movie that I have barely seen a trailer for. I, I am more aware of it than um, having this. This one, I, I feel you're less... Uh, it's less problematic that you're not aware of it. I feel like it's sort of a family movie with, but with like Daily Show uh, alums. Okay. Yeah. I, I slept on Storks and I slept on this. So I feel like I need to, you know, have a kid if I want to succeed yeah. or at least consider that kids see movies. Well, and that's what you really need to do is you really need to butter up Phil because he's the one who keeps killing it on these kids movies. He does. Uh, so Midnight Warriors, we may have a lot of movie knowledge. But for week seven, we were poor prognosticators with our top prize going the last episode's guest and Geek Melee contributor Drew Allen Cineplex called Bury Me With My Movies. <laughs> uh, is that a reference you get, Chris? It is a reference I get, but I think a reference I would not have gotten before or I would have at least not remembered before hanging out with Drew in college. Yeah, well, you might know the reference, but you don't know much about the box office because you came in second to last with $44 million. Yeah. Yeah. Were were you surprised by Kevin Hart's disappointing draw with only $41,000 per bucks? Yeah, no, I was really, really disappointed in Kevin Hart's uh, performance. I don't know why exactly, but I had it in the back of my mind that he was going to be going to be big. Um, I, but it, it wasn't great. Okay. What is this that when you say 41K per bucks, what does this mean? Uh, okay, so this is probably a good time to talk about Fantasy Movie League research, which is not something I ever do, uh, but you can go to the Fantasy Movie League website, and at the top, there's a tab called Research Vault. Mm -hmm. If you click on that, there's a few different ways you can slice the numbers, but if you go to FML Bucks, then you can see for the last week and the last couple weeks um, how much money the movie made per price of the movie on FML. Okay. So, for instance, the accountant uh, cost $365, which is really expensive. But even with that, it was the highest performer in dollars per bucks. So each dollar you spent on it gained you $67,700. Okay. Gotcha. You know who didn't have the accountant on a single screen? Uh, Me? You didn't either? I didn't. No. I didn't have the accountant. I thought, ah, oh, this, this Ben Affleck movie where he has like Asperger's and kills people i've been seeing the trailer for like six months it's got to be bad right no one's gonna see this right people turned out yeah did he did he, did, uh, did ben affleck direct it no he did not direct it 
then I'm not interested. That's That was my exact thought going into it. And I thought other people were like, I don't want to see a Ben Affleck movie. He was just a terrible Batman or something. Again, I don't, no, I don't really. He, he, I, was, he was the best part of that movie. Well, uh, in any case, uh, so other like high performers this last week were middle school and storks, where the lowest ones were things like uh, The Girl on the Train or actually Kevin Hart. Even though uh-huh. the movie made a lot of money, yeah. it was priced very high. Yeah, well, and I think Kevin Hart was, I believe Kevin Hart was number two for the week. So it, if you just look at the number, purely the numbers, it seems great, but spending all the bucks on it apparently was a bad investment. Yep. And it, it, and it might be better this week when it's only, uh, $77 to put it in your Cineplex. And I don't know what the word of mouth is looking like on it, but I know when I went to Birth of a Nation, there were so many screens at the theater I went to showing Kevin Hart Mm -hmm. that I was sort of blown away and immediately thought I had screwed up my Cineplex real bad. Yeah. Well, I think, I think this coming week, I'm just going to go Kevin Hart and Medea. That's all I'm going to (laughs) do. I almost went eight uh, Max Steels this last week. <laughs> I, I know I sent you guys a screenshot. I, I sent it to Chris and Drew. Uh, just said, this is my Cineplex, eight Max Steels. I, I wonder where that would have put me. I, it would be good to look to go and look and see if you would have been any better than at least than what I did. So, Hunter, how has your Cineplex been doing? And don't you know that when Wayne Gretzky said you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, he was referring specifically to our fantasy movie league? Um, I'm pretty sure, guys, that the distinction between Wayne Gretzky and myself is far greater than just taking shots. <laughs> so so you think that I could be the Wayne Gretzky of film predictions? I, I think so for our league, honestly. Like you – just because you follow this stuff more than most of us do. Right. And um, I'm Canadian. That's not true. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not Canadian, thank God. I would say that anybody anybody could come in and compete really well in our league except, you know – uh, School of Rock Cineplex by Phil Lucia was a top 100 finisher, as we said earlier. And that wasn't just like in our league. That was of all people who do this, the 25,000 plus Cineplexes. Yeah. That's not bad because here's the thing is anytime Chris is mentioned, it's always FML. And my first reaction is always, why is Chris saying F- my life? <laughs> and then it takes me a second. I've had to, I've had to re- redefine that acronym in my head. Right. There has been um, there is the only reason is a a mutation of blending you might say of cowardice and sloth i do not want to be exposed <laughs> uh for not being wayne gretzky essentially not being the wayne gretzky this so i choose to just not take the shot i i feel like you if you join you will without a doubt do better than either of us like it's you you i mean i am i have been finishing in the latter 50 percent ever since i think the second week i was playing or the first week I was playing. I, I alternate between doing decent and I was dead last well, this week. So, I mean, it's not like I know. Well, anything. I'll just uh, I'll just uh, put this out there. Does this have an end game or is it because like fantasy football it, obviously it, it's have an seasons. end game. seasons. So this is actually like prestige season. Mm-hmm. Then do you think that the person who places last should have to chug something? <laughs> Maybe. We, we actually uh, have discussed we're going to do some awards and – what not? Do you want to do you want to do a, a wager right now? I, well, between before, the three well, of us, my my impetus for that is it reminds me of a joke on The Simpsons, wherever they say in America, game shows reward accomplishment, where in Japan they punish stupidity, <laughs> and I think that punishing <laughs> stupidity is a far greater motivator. So yes, I so, do think there so needs to be a wager. So that's interesting. So we have we we're already planning on doing an award for the best, you know, highest performing 
single week box office across the board. What what highest performing single week highest um, lowest lowest like, performing single week would be? It sounds like what what you are describing, Hunter. Yes, and I think that that person, given that it is the holiday season, the prestige season, that person should have to chug just one because we don't want to be responsible for anyone's death. Some they'll have to chug a single lining kugel cranberry shandy. <laughs> <laughs> but. Here's my problem. Uh, as a non-drinker, what what can I drink that it is as as bad as you got to pay to play, man? <laughs> okay, <laughs> Wayne Gretzky. Okay, would Wayne Gretzky say, "Oh, I'm sorry, I don't drink. I can't do this." No. Yeah, I, I mean, even Jake, even as a teetotaler, this is uh, this is hardly alcohol. This is hardly. I mean, it's a uh, it's the birth of a nation of of, of beers, you might say. <laughs> Oh, no, God. I, I, that's I, I was just trying. I was trying to think of the non-alcoholic equivalent. Is it like a Coke Black, which you can't even get anymore? What is the deal with people drinking Crystal those Clear Lacroix things? The oh. Lacroix, what is the, what is the deal with that? That it, seemed to come out of nowhere. It's I don't know. It's it, it's it's actually a good mixer mm-hmm. for for cocktails. But I mean, just drinking it on its own. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. Well, do you think that that's a fair trade off? I don't know. We'll, we'll think of something. We'll, we'll figure this out. We've got some weeks. Uh, if listeners of Midnight Warriors out there want to uh, chime in, feel free to do so as well. Um, you can, you know, if you, if you come up with an idea, you can email it to us at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. And if you want to join in on the action, you can visit wsampod.com slash fantasy movie league for all the details. Godzilla's appeal is obvious. Giant monster destroys city and fights other giant monsters. It's every five-year-old's fantasy, even if said five-year-old happens to be a grown-ass man. But Godzilla is so much more than that. Now, you'd expect this belief from a fanboy, but the Beast has always been at his best when he speaks to the prevailing political climate. In 1954, he was a parable for nuclear annihilation, still a fresh scab for a nation less than a decade removed from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In 2016, his return to the big screen reveals the anxieties and realities of contemporary life on an interconnected planet. Yes, Shin Godzilla strikes a chord in a world consumed by Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Brexit, rising nationalism, and creeping globalization. The story is but simple. Giant monster arrives in Japan, Japanese government responds. While the formula is familiar, the film isn't. Don't expect a cheesy man and stoop monster mash. This is a geopolitical thriller. How did the Japanese cut through bureaucratic red tape to defeat a 350-foot-tall radioactive dinosaur? Does the demilitarized Japan cave to international pressure? Or does the island nation go it alone against a giant nuclear demigod? Much of the film's runtime is dedicated not to kaiju calamity, but to questions fans have been debating for 62 years. What is Godzilla's biology? His chemistry? What would be the real-world response to his resurgence? It may be a bit talky for most, but is a Golden Corral-level buffet line for fanboys. The movie is directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi, men who are clearly shooting shade at Hollywood's versions of the character and want to show us Americans how it's done. It worked, at least in the land of the rising sun, where the film has become their highest-grossing live-action release of the year and the highest-grossing Godzilla film in about 50 years. Now, Shin Godzilla won't bust block stateside, but could it affect Legendary Pictures, which is increasingly building their business model on the back of the big guy? Or will Hollywood just do its thing while Toho does theirs, 
with us fans reaping the benefits. So Chris and Jacob, I'm quite certain this was not the film you were expecting. So I'm curious, does Shin Godzilla expand your appreciation for the King of the Monsters? And more importantly, would you two like to start a Godzilla marathon following the conclusion of this recording? So, uh, let's just get it out on the table. I have seen, I saw like Godzilla 2000 or whatever the American version of that was. The, oh, the Matthew Broderick one? The, the Voldemort of Godzilla's. Yeah, that is, that is referred to as Gino among circles, our circles, Godzilla name only. Is, is that the one where there were some eggs in Madison Square Garden? That's yes, the main thing I that, remember. That was mm-hmm. terrible. Asexual a Godzilla. Uh, and then um, I saw like the tape of one of these at my friend's grandpa's house when I was little. I don't know what one it was, but that's my extent of my experience with Godzilla. So I didn't really know what to expect. So you didn't see the most recent, the, the American one, the Brian Cranston one? I have not. No, I have not. That being said, there were things I liked, but it was not what I was expecting. You you haven't even you haven't even seen like King of the Monsters? Nope. The original like American recut? Wow. Nope. And then Chris, were you able to uh I I, I believe Jake was able to catch this. Did you pull a hundred Kates and were you did you miss this? I so here's the thing. I had I had a screener for it. I fully intended to watch it, to squeeze it in. I've had a really busy couple of weeks. Um I made the mistake of trying to put this on at uh, around 11 o'clock in the evening and it was moving too fast. I couldn't like, I couldn't keep up with the subtitles. And so I just gave up. Yes. This here's the thing is this is far and away. I'm not just going to say the talkiest Godzilla movie I've ever seen. This is one of the talkiest action movies I've ever seen. Talkiest mm-hmm. blockbusters I've ever seen. So that is uh that might be a bit of a barrier to entry for most, but once what they're talking about is, Again, like I said in the intro, is it's what is the honest to God real world response to if this were to happen? And so it was it functioned as a satire in many ways because most of the talking was them going back and forth to meetings because they had to get somebody's permission. Mm-hmm. They had well, to have uh, a meeting and, for a meeting. And I, I got that yeah. out of, you know, the opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was very evident. Yeah, you had to have. An- I, w- I was expecting to see Godzilla throwing cars around and, you know knocking the subway off and all that. But what I got, which I, I, in retrospect, I really liked, but I wasn't expecting it. So I was like, why isn't Godzilla, you know, fighting is a statement on Japanese political bureaucracy and their place in world, you know, geopolitics. And see that, that makes me think you really do need to see at least the original Godzilla. You need to. Yeah. Well, I mean, you need to see them all, but yeah, you need to, (laughs) you need to see the original, but I, I purposely tried to know as little as possible about this going into it. All I really knew is that it just did gangbusters in Japan, which they haven't done that well in a long time. And as I said, this is this is a movie that has really struck a chord with Japanese audiences for the fact that it does embrace Japanese nationalism in many ways. It's It's almost like Japan's coming out from... 60 years of irrelevancy is what this movie is is making a statement about, which is really fascinating to me that you have this iconic character over there that their equivalent of Batman. And and so it's almost being revived again and used as a, as a, like I said, a political statement. Even the prime minister commented on this movie's success. Well, he also dressed up as Mario for the Olympics. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, th- this, this movie also <laughs> reminded me of a uh, planet of the apes because as a kid, I thought Planet of the Apes was about a Planet of the Apes, and as a grown-up, I saw it was about, you know, race relations, nuclear fears, uh, young versus all. It had all these, you know, like a good sci-fi movie, all these, uh, it's a parable. It it related to other things, 
And I thought this picture was the same way. Uh, Hunter, let me ask you this. You posited, do we want to start a Godzilla marathon after after this film? Um, one, it's going to be difficult because Hollywood Video is closed down. <sighs> War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and But uh, how many, like, how much of the Godzilla canon is really making comment about the world and how much of it is more like monsters just smashing. I would, well, it it, honestly, I would say that most of them are making some sort of commentary. It's just some are more ham fisted and less subtle than, than others really, except for a a spare few, none of them are just completely divorced from whatever the topic at hand is. Mm -hmm. None of them have really done it as well as this one. Cause like I said, quite a few of them are ham fisted. They'll have the giant monsters fighting at the very end. And that's why you shouldn't. And that's why you shouldn't (laughs) pollute kids. Okay. Things like that. Um, whereas this it's, it's way more, again, it's way more realistic. My issue with the movie is even though I, I very much enjoyed it, I'd actually put it in my top three or top five Godzilla movies, having seen it twice. Um, my issue twice. Oh Yeah. Here, here's it the, only ran this week. This is why you didn't see Birth of a Nation because you were too busy seeing Shin Godzilla yeah, I, twice. But um, no regrets, <laughs> no regrets. But um, it could have used some <laughs> Nolan esque energy and urgency. It lacked a little bit of that, and that that's what I really, really enjoy in blockbuster pictures, which you don't see a whole lot. You see a lot in Hollywood pictures. Some do it better than others. Is just this is the end of the world. Um, it, it wasn't loud enough. You know what I mean? It it lacked that intensity. I, I felt like Tokyo was threatened, but also like the ticking clock of like Godzilla's not going to wake up for fifteen days. It was kind of took weird. away. Yeah, it took away some of the the amplitude. But but at the same time, it, yeah, it, it, you might say it sacrificed um urgency for realism because that's that's how, probably what would happen. Right, and if a giant monster were to attack Tokyo, I, I, uh, and uh, you can probably answer this better than me, Shin Godzilla can be translated as true Godzilla, right? True, new, or god. But I think, as I was saying, they were trying to shoot some shade at Hollywood because they didn't they didn't like um, the newest one, twenty fourteen, all that much. So they're, th- that's what the title is: is true Godzilla. So again, shooting some shade okay. there. That's wonderful. Because when I heard it was true Godzilla, the film made a lot more sense to me because it was like, this is a realistic approach. Like, how would government handle a catastrophe hmm. like this? And and we we have, um, you know, tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes. We don't have like a really slow moving giant disaster like that in real life. And so it was interesting seeing the what if a giant monster was going to attack and it's not just people running and it's not just things getting smashed it's an actual basically a natural disaster that right they have and to you deal got with. that from the original the 1954 original but again that was set in the 50s that was a different time this is set in a very modern japan and in a japan that's very integrated with the world around so you see france play a role you see germany play a role china and russia and of course the united states all play a role in what's going on here um the first time I saw it, it was just, it was me. I wanted it to be a special time between just me and Godzilla. <laughs> and then the second time I went with some people, and this is why I think you'll really uh, get a kick out of it, Chris, is that the per- one of the people I saw it with said, I didn't know that Wes Anderson flew to Japan <laughs> to uh, direct a Godzilla movie. Because the camera work, not just with the monster itself, it's not just static point and shoot there's a lot of dynamism going on well, in the framing and I, I direction felt, i felt from what i saw it felt like it was a bit of a found footage 
film. Is it like that throughout? Or well, there was there's of... found footage of it, but it, it, it's Wes Andersonian. Okay, the way the way he stages I, things. I thought I thought it had a lot of Wes Anderson going on, and I thought it had a lot of Edgar Wright in there as well because it was very fast. The dialogue was very fast. Sometimes the cutting was very fast. It. It reminded me of Scott Pilgrim probably the most because there's a lot of text on screen. You're trying to read the subtitles for the text, and you're trying to read the subtitles of what is being said. It's throwing so much information at you at once. I I would have appreciated a a dubbed ver- version with the subtitles in English, so I could have picked up on everything like a, a native. Right, and I don't mean to sound like it. It may sound strange, strange saying this about a Godzilla movie, but this is something that benefits from a second or third viewing. Because you mentioned there being a lot of text on the screen. At one point in time, they're talking about Article 76, which um, gives Japan the right to launch a military attack on their island. And so they actually have Article 76 Mm -hmm. on the screen. And then this was an in-joke that I didn't notice the first time. But they're making fun of bureaucracy. So every time a character appears on the screen, it shows their title. But as mm-hmm. their jobs change, right. they're, they're, they get more and more titles. So eventually they have 30 <laughs> titles occupying the screen. So that's not something you necessarily know okay. the first time. So again, I mean, that's okay. that's unusual to say about a Godzilla movie. And this is coming from a fan is this is something that genuinely benefits from a second viewing or, you know, 50. Yeah, I, all, all those titles, I, I literally gave up on them five minutes in. I was trying to read everything and I said, I'm going to have to just follow well, the dialogue. Yeah, and I don't even think do. as, as much of as much of those titles were there, I don't even think they expected Japanese viewers to pay attention to all of them. Because again, it, the joke was just that their titles were expanding. Um, Hunter, I have a question. Um, does Godzilla always uh, like evolve like he did in this picture? No, that's uh, not not in film. Now that's happened sometimes in comic books, but as okay. far as on screen, no, that that was a first. What What about shooting laser beams from his mouth? He's always shot a radioactive beam <laughs> from his mouth. It's never been a laser, but actually they play with that some in this too. And I'm this isn't a spoiler because you you'll see it in the trailer. But in this, his body is so consumed by radiation that he actually shoots it out of his back. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I saw the trailers, I thought this is going to be batshit insane. But the funny thing is they managed to make it work and make it make sense. So it wasn't like you were watching just some crazy Japanese thing. It actually made perfect sense within Mm -hmm. the context of what was going on here. I was actually surprised by how weird they got with this. (laughs) With with all that evolving, do you think he should have been able to blink at some point? Because early Godzilla's googly eyes. Both times I saw that, yeah. Both times I saw that there was was laughing from the audience. And in one time, the first time, there was groaning because I thought, is that what he looks like? For those who don't know, he, he starts off crawling on his hind legs. He looks like a giant tadpole. But the reason for that is, is that he's he's an amphibian. So he's like a he's like a tadpole or a fish and fish don't blink. So is this the like a Godzilla origin story? Yes, this is this is not in any way affiliated. This is the first Japanese movie that is not in any way affiliated with the original. This is if he f- appeared for the very first time, Okay, which in and of itself is pretty bold. Um, and, and and we we like you said, you had some laughter the people I saw it with, we all thought that this was going to be the monster Godzilla was fighting because he looked in no way like Godzilla. And he was just lumbering around on his belly with the big stupid eyes. We thought, oh, okay, Godzilla is going to come and fight this thing. And Tokyo is going to be the, the ring that they fight in. No, nope. yeah, yeah, and exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, and that's how the formula would normally go. That's even kind of how uh, the 2014 one went down as you had 
you were led to believe that, oh, this is Godzilla attacking those nuclear reactors, and then no, it was a different monster, and Godzilla fought them. This was trying for something completely different. And so it was really refreshing for a, a longtime fan to see them get creative with this, and yet it still worked. Did, did you think the CG Godzilla worked better than a guy in a suit? Not Well, they did guy in a suit somewhere, but... Um, Here's the thing is I've always bought guy in a suit. I don't know what it is about me. I've, I've just I've, I've always been convinced. But um, there, the CG in this, whenever it worked, it was as good as anything you'll see in America. But there were a few times where it looked video game quality. But at the same time, you see American yeah. movies sometimes and it looks video game quality. Fantastic Four. Yeah. I, I think guy in a suit works really well to the point where I was probably a little too old to be asking this question. I was probably, you know, 13, 14 and going, how did they do that stuff in Power Rangers? Because it looked really good. They were knocking buildings down. <laughs> I um I was impressed. I kind of I really want to talk about the 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 ending ending, but I don't want to spoil it for Chris. So I'm not you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna roll the spoiler alert song and let's just have at it. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! and Luke, Lamb is alive and well. Tiny Dark turned out to be a dream. Or did it? Or didn't it? I don't know. Right, so Jake, did you have some issues with how they finished him off, how they defeated the monster? Uh, you mean how the crane force came in? Yes, that got that got some laughs. Yeah, it did, and our reaction when we left is every single drop of it ended up in his mouth. There was no splashing, no nothing. It here's, just here's what I like about that. Yeah, here's what I like about that is in many ways this was a almost a commentary on the entire series is whenever it, this movie was dark, it worked and you bought it. And whenever this movie was cheesy, like some of the some of the cheesy ones were, you, you still were invested in it, it being cheesy. So it managed to be both dark and cheesy at the same time. And I dug that. Did you did you get that at all? A little bit. It, it did feel like a 50s or 60s sci-fi movie to me where they come up with this clever little solution. Um, it also <laughs> reminded me of Evolution. Do you remember that movie? That's, where they yeah. Used you're not the first yeah. one to point that out, but yeah. I have no idea. I, I know what evolution is, but other than that, I have no idea what you guys are talking about right now. Oh, you should see evolution. I actually really liked it. No, I, I've seen evolution. I mean, like crane force and dropping everything in his mouth. Don't. Good. Okay. Just yeah, don't you, even you've worry got about plenty it. to look but forward to. Th- they essentially do. They essentially use head and shoulders. Okay. I mean, that's not what happens, but it's a lot. But like it's, that. yeah, it's essentially that. Um, okay. So the very last frame did, what was your interpretation of that? Uh, that there were little baby Godzillas in his tail. Hey, okay, exactly. So here, here's the the big time spoiler, and this is just so crazy. But like I said, it works, or it it worked in this. Is that the very last frame of this? The conceit of the movie is that he is able to. Uh, he's got indomitable survival mechanisms. He's the most highly evolved creature on the earth, constantly evolving as we see throughout the movie. And so the very last frame. Does, is, does he ever go Super Saiyan? Not in this one, but he may. Actually, I take that back. He does go Super Saiyan. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um, but in the in the very last frame, it shows these kind of humanoid things growing out of his tail, and they have spines, like Godzilla spines coming out of their back. So the implication of that is he is evolving into a human form. Oh. So, yeah. Hmm. 
because yeah because like i said he's constantly evolving to meet the threat and like i said it's just that is so batshit saying it or if i were to read it but yet within the context of the movie it works there are parts of like the descriptions that you guys have had in in conversation that kind of remind me of like have you guys read or seen akira no yes okay kind of remind me of the the insanity of of some of that. Well, the director of this movie, both of them were in, both the directors were involved in anime, but the director is uh, Evangelion. I think I pronounced oh, yeah, that correctly. Yeah. Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah. So it had an anime quality to it insofar as it's something that if you were divorced from it, you were just to see frames or something, you would just be, this is bonkers. Mm-hmm. But yet whenever you see it within the entire context thing, it's it's a it's good, high quality Japanese weird. It, it, it was. <laughs> uh, and I did like that about it. I... I liked that they were reacting to some just crazy things that were going on. And it was like a real world political. Uh, Chris, do you remember the opening of uh, Ikaru? Um, is it are they sitting in the, the, the room all together? No, uh, I- I- Ikaru opens and they're trying to get that uh, like sewage dump cleaned up where the park eventually is going to go. Oh, yeah, yeah. They- the, the the just bureaucratic mess of nothing gets gets moved on, right? Yes, I thought a lot about that in this mm. one because it's just person after person after person and it's nothing's actually happening, but there's a disaster going on. And I yeah. like that. So, yeah, um, like I said, it made a... a, a- boatload of of money in japan um highest grossing uh live action movie because animes and animation always does the best over there um it's doing pretty well here but it's obviously not going to do as well do you think that if they if this were to be an american version if they were to mind you speed things up do you think this this would be too weird for american audiences and that they should probably just play it safe with the monster or do you think that this could have been what an American Godzilla was. Um, can can Edgar Wright direct it? Because if so, I'm in. That's, it that's needs, a, it needs a good Wright. director. Go ahead. I was going to say Edgar Wright or Wes Anderson. Or, or or both. I mean, they could tag team it. But I think Edgar Wright has the right idea for comedy, which a lot of this was meant to be funny and satire. And it it's, re- it's really smart for being a monster movie. I think he has the chops to make it really good i could also see a less talented director kind of botching the whole thing and trying to make it too action driven and all these other things that wouldn't work yeah nate parker shouldn't direct it but um yeah another thing that worked about it to the point of wes anderson and edgar wright is it it had a throwback quality to it because i'm not sure if you recognize this but a lot of the music from it was literally recordings from the 60s and 70s. They were using, oh, really? yeah, and they weren't just redoing them. They were using the actual recordings from the old ones. <laughs> and so they managed to incorporate the recordings of that music into it. So again, that's a Wes Andersonian kind of thing. Is- Hunter, how, how, did, how did you like the, um, the monster getting the Godzilla name in this film? Okay, that was actually an in-joke as well because... Spoiler alert, they say that... The we're mon- already in yeah, spoilers. Yeah, exactly, we're already in spoilers. Hell. Okay, so they say that they're, the Americans are calling it Godzilla, and they say, well, because America calls it Godzilla, that must be what it is, and then they defiantly start calling it Gojira. Um, <laughs> so, so again, once again, shooting some shade uh, across the pond there. Hey, I've I've attempted to call the original Gojira before, and you, you've said, no, 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 just call it Godzilla. Well, okay, so here's the story is whenever the movie came out in 1950s, there was a heavyset executive at Toho who they called Gojira mm-hmm. because he was, he was such a big guy. It is a combination, don't laugh, it is a combination of the Japanese word for gorilla, which is Gorira, and the Japanese word for Kujira, which is together Gojira. So that's where they got the name. Okay. 
whenever the Japanese were translating it, the Japanese character for the first one is Go, so that stayed. The second one can be pronounced either G, Goji, or G, D-Z-I. So Goji, and then in Japan, there is no L. There's no equivalent for the L sound. So Ra became La. So Gojira and Gozilla are essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. So the Ooh. Japanese actually called it Gozilla, God, Gozilla, Godzilla, whenever it came over here. And so we just pronounce it Godzilla. So yeah. either or is acceptable. And that concludes fun facts with yeah, Hunter Cates. That, is that the nerdiest <laughs> this show's ever gotten, I think? Uh, uh, probably the most in-depth, for sure. Yeah, exactly. On It definitely demonstrated your love for this film, as if I had any doubt already. I mean, yeah, we're, we're talking, this is five years. Like I said, I mean, it's something that would appeal to any five-year-old, even if that five-year-old was a grown-ass man. Okay, let's... Let me ask this to to kind of wrap up, and I know the answer to it, but I I remember when the was it twenty fourteen Godzilla the Gareth Edwards one yeah yeah came out and you were very excited for it. I mean the the trailer was awesome, mm-hmm. and then the evolution of your after seeing it, sort of the acceptance of it was sort of a sad thing too, because initially <laughs> you were like you were like it had problems, but you know it was a Godzilla movie, it was mm-hmm. great, and then the further out we got, it would be more like ah, but it. It had problems. Like that was more the focus. Does this does this redeem that? Does this meet your that little Godzilla size hole? The, here's the thing, <laughs> Godzilla. If I had a Godzilla size hole in me, um, <laughs> but um, here's the thing: is like I said in the intro, is America is clearly going to do its thing, and its thing is going to be in end with Godzilla versus King Kong, or maybe Godzilla versus Pacific Rim, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They're doing something completely different, which is just monsters beating the shit out of each other. Whereas Japan, I think, is diving more into the mythology and the science of the character. Mm-hmm. I'm cool with each doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and post it in the show notes, but this this big name in Godzilla circles named Steve Rifle wrote an article about how the 2014 movie everything it got wrong from just a mythology standpoint so i'll post that in the show notes it's it's a pretty good summation of the issues but no like i said i mean america is not going to produce a japanese godzilla right. the american godzilla works for what they're trying to do it's better than gina spoilers are done spoilers are done turns out rosebud was only a sled Um, so I'm curious, Chris, um, do you have a beer recommendation for this as well? Because I, do. I don't, I don't know if you need the inebriation. Quite honestly, <laughs> this this is an inebriating experience on its own. Yeah. So I, I have a recommendation. This is what I plan to be drinking when I finally do get the chance to watch Shin Godzilla. Um, and this is a a cheeky recommendation, but uh, also a great one. It's uh, Yeti, which is a imperial stout from Great Divide Brewing Company. Um, Yeti is a great sort of uh, chocolatey stout. Um, it's, it's a little heavy. It's a, it comes in a 9.5 being Imperial. Um, it's the type of, it's the type of beer that you probably only want one of because, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty hefty. It's pretty, you know, it's like judging by the experience that you guys have been describing, it's, you know, you get to the end of, of this movie and it almost feels like you're, you're wiped out in, um, in engagement. And that's, you get to the end of this beer and it's sort of like, 
well, that was that that was filling and satisfying, and I need to need to sit for a second. So hopefully it's hopefully it's a good match. We'll see. But that that's what I plan to drink uh, when I finally get to catch up with Shin Godzilla. Can a teetotaler uh, do a beer recommendation, Chris? Absolutely. Okay, because I, uh, being from Louisiana, do want to plug Nola Brewing's company's double IPA, uh, which was called Mecca Hopzilla until it was literally defeated by Godzilla and Toho uh when they sued them for the name so now it's just called mecca but it is an american imperial ipa and it's at 8.8 percent alcohol by volume i'm not really sure what alcohol is you guys would have to explain that but have have you had that one chris um i think i tried to have it whenever uh actually phil and i came down and visited you and they were they were out of it um so no i i haven't but uh this is actually a great sort of uh light and dark imperial pairs for you know the king of the monsters uh imperial ipa imperial stout have yeah you a, a kitschier version a kitschier beer and a uh and a, and a more realistic one um hunter do you know where i mean i know this was a limited screening right um by the time you listen to this episode folks it will probably no longer be playing in american theaters i think it's already not playing here anymore but it did so well in japan it's doing well here mm-hmm. um so it'll it'll obviously be released on DVD soon enough, and then whenever it is, they will have a dubbed version for and, Jake. and VOD or VHS if you want to pick that up at Hollywood Video or Stars at Midnight. Brought to you by Hollywood Video. Yes, exactly. Albertsons Video, or if you're an Albertsons, if you're an Albertsons rental family, yeah, you can do that one too. <laughs> okay, well, if you've seen Shin Godzilla, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com in your best. Uh, what do you say? Hashtag it Screonk, which is how Godzilla's roar is usually verbalized in comic books is screonk okay so if you hashtag screonk <laughs> that oh my god <laughs> um and uh let us know what you thought yeah and stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next they all came from different schools but they were all the tigers most of them were quitters but a few were fighters start to get a little bit proud of where you're from you should plan to lose a muscle that is sweeter when you win All right, guys, we've reached the end of the show again, which means it's time for really rad recommendations. Now, Hunter, I know you have a plethora of monster movies in your, you know, in your little memory palace of. Uh, so I, I'm hoping like if you recommend something that is not in some way related to uh, cities being destroyed by giant monsters, I'm going, going to be disappointed. I'm going to make you 
you know, recommend something else. Go so, into the memory palace and yeah, find something. Yeah. So what do you have to recommend? You know, my, my, my choice is going to be a little obvious, but given that Jake has not seen it, I think that it, that I would qualify this truly as essential viewing. And that is the original 1954 Godzilla. I think it should be paired as a double feature with the American, Americanized version Godzilla King of the Monsters, which came out in 1956 and had Raymond Burr uh, inserted into it. Mm-hmm. Raymond Burr before he became Perry Mason. Do, do you have a order that it should be watched in? Well, you know, because- honestly, you should. The natural progression is to see as a child Godzilla King of the Monsters and then come back later and see Godzilla. Uh-huh. However, if you if you haven't seen either, then I think just do the Japanese one first yeah. and then see the American version. Is it the same exact uh, shots of Godzilla and whatnot? Yes. What but, they, but but they've completely sorry, go ahead. Well, it's it's the it's the same it's it's the same they took the Japanese version, cut out about 15 minutes of of the Japanese actors, inserted Raymond Burr in it and it's actually pretty seamless, quite frankly. Huh. And so it's a very, very different movie, very different attitude. But is it still in Tokyo, or is it in like San Francisco yes, now, or something? Oh yeah, it's it's still in, it's still in Tokyo. The the conceit is that Raymond Burr, who played a reporter named Steve Martin, haha, um, flew to J- flew to Japan to visit a friend, and okay. the friend was someone who's in the Japanese version. But correct me if I'm I'm wrong. King of the Monsters starts out like after everything, right? That, and and that's they- a that's a good point that Chris makes. Is spoiler alert the the Japanese one is happening in real time. And so that's what Steven Spielberg said is that he said it was the best dinosaur movie because it made you believe it was really happening. Whereas the American one is a flashback. The entire movie is taking place as Raymond Burr's narration. Okay. So that in and of itself, it's almost a good um, a good case study in the different ways that the same story can be told. Yeah, it's it, it, that's exactly like the last time that I watched, I watched Godzilla and then I watched I didn't watch all of but I watched a good three quarters of King of the Monster or King of the Monsters. And it was very interesting to see so closely how they sort of reappropriated and still made a story that worked and made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're, if you're a fan of, of Akira Kurosawa or Japanese films or anything, I think that Godzilla, Gojira, however you want to say it, that's, that's a, an essential world right. cinema mm-hmm. viewing. Whereas King of the Monsters is more your classic 1950s B movie sci-fi just done very, very well. Where and Hunter, where can we if we want to watch it? Well, hopefully we you can watch it on the Filmstruck thing that's coming out eventually. But until we know that for sure, you can rent either of them separately on Amazon or just plop the twenty to thirty bucks and then buy the Criterion Blu-ray or DVD, which features both. And it's I I actually have the uh, the Blu-ray. It's beautiful, and I highly recommend it. Is it really on Criterion? I had no clue. Yeah, yeah, it is. I actually petitioned them, and, <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. I wrote a letter to Criterion in 2002 saying, hey, could you get Godzilla on the Criterion collection? And my, my request was answered clearly two years it, later. Thank yeah. you, clearly Hunter. Was, thank you for doing that yeah. service. <laughs> All right, Jake, well, what do you have to recommend? Okay, I'm recommending two movies. I wanted to go uh, kind of like we paired the movies today, kind of give recommendations for each one. Uh, so first up would be um, Mississippi Burning. Has it, have either of you seen Mississippi Burning? Yes, it has Gene Hackman, and so you know Chris is seen. No, it. That, that's exactly like we, that's exactly my train of thought. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. It has Gene Hackman, and so you know Chris has seen it. It has Willem Dafoe in it, so you know I've seen it. <laughs> are you guys Are you guys going to go as a Mississippi Burning for Halloween? Because I think Chris could do a that's a that's a <laughs> do a good Gene Hackman action, that, and that's I could actually, be Willem Dafoe. That's adorable. That's actually sort of the dynamic we have too. Yeah, exactly. That's that's not a bad idea, Jake. <laughs> Thank you. It might be it might be too late to get the costume, but next year. 
the, the costume is suits. If you don't have the costume in your closet, I'm, I'm concerned. Um, okay, Mississippi Burning. Why Mississippi Burning, Jake? Why? Because I think I want it more of what Mississippi Burning gave um, out of uh, Birth of a Nation. I, I wanted mm-hmm. a more... I know that that was a movie on slavery, and this is a movie on... I think it's set in 1964 uh, in Mississippi, but it is a better take on racism and standing against it and all this other... All the, all the other stuff that I wanted from Birth of a Nation and didn't get. Yeah. Plus, you get to see Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. I don't know if I would say at their prime in 1988, but both really near the top of their game. Yeah. Well, and I think Gene Hackman was like – Gene Hackman has like he – I don't want to say plateau, plateaued, but he reached like God level of like at, at some point where it was just like everything – has he had a bad performance like not that I'm aware of, but to your point, he it kind of reminds me of late stage Paul Newman. Is I don't think there's any acting better than a former New York actor who, when they were young, they were really methody, mm-hmm. and then once they get older and just they don't do that shit anymore, they just go out and be awesome. Mm-hmm. And that's what Gene Hackman and, is. And that's this. and then Willem Dafoe, I think, was still like on the upward, you know, upward arc mm-hmm. in in that film. Yeah, fantastic. This, yeah, this was right after Platoon, so it was. Yeah, you know, he, he was had made a name for himself. So if we all know how great this movie is, why is it not ever remembered more fondly or placed in in lists like other films of the era? There I, is no good answer. Or- I actually I have a theory on this. So I I think it's one of those because of when it came out. You know, it came out. Home video was around, but not like you know, it's it's that late eighties, early nineties place where I feel like if this movie had like a Shawshank Redemption representation on where it was just on basic cable all the time and um and kind of people were able to sit and take in how uh understatedly good it is, I think it would have that beloved nature. But um as far as I'm aware, like I, I saw it my freshman year in a college class mm-hmm. and um, I, I wasn't even really aware of it until it, it was forced upon me to, to watch. And and then it was like sort of this, this gem of where has this been hiding all my life? That's a, that's a good point is it, it lacked the TNT effect. Yeah, exactly. It, it's not, it's not constantly playing on basic cable. And I, I think if it did have that platform, a lot more people would talk about it as a, a golden gem of like, oh my gosh, Hackman and Defoe and, and just the, the way that it approaches the content is fantastic like i said it's understated um and it's uh no it's a it's a beautiful film but it's also it's not you know it's not audacious it's not um you know it's just really well made cinema. yeah it lost out best picture to rain man and it won for best cinematography it had seven nominations but it's it seems to be totally forgotten yeah well let, let's turn that around uh, my other my other film also forgotten, possibly for a good reason, but uh, I wanted to uh, pair something with Godzilla, and we we referenced it, and I want to go back and watch it. So I'm going to say 2001's Evolution. <laughs> yeah i I don't think I've seen this movie since the theaters, Jake. And and really, what I remember is Orlando Jones. I also love that we all saw it in theaters. <laughs> we all did. I, I mean, this I think we it had was to. obscure then, and it's obscure now, and we all saw it in theaters. <laughs> It, it, it's it's the story of like an alien life form comes to Earth and evolves at a really rapid pace or reproduces and, re, and evolves at a really rapid pace. And you get mm-hmm. to see David Duchovny, Julianne Moore, Orlando Jones, Sean William Scott try to fight this. 
Um, oh, yeah. Sean William Scott's in this movie. Yeah, the golden era of Sean William I'm Scott. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. That ensemble is comparable to Gene Hackman and Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to bring out all the best. So this is Ivan Ivan Reit- Reitman. Is that how you say it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Ivan Reitman. That's right. I, I want to say it was the best thing he had made since Ghostbusters. I don't know if... Um, wait, no, 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 no. Groundhog Day. He did Groundhog Day, right? No, no, no. That was, no, that uh, was Harold Ramis. Oh, gosh. You're right. Yeah. My... Yeah, yeah, I, th- I I think you're right, Jake. I can't think of anything else he did. Yeah, so it was uh he after after Ghostbusters he did you know Twins and Kindergarten Cop, Six Days Seven mm-hmm. Nights. I, I'm gonna say oh, it, yeah. it it was the closest he came to kind of getting that sci-fi comedy mix, and it's a forgotten picture, possibly for good reason. Yeah, no, it well not necessarily for good reason. Like it's not well, and I haven't seen it in what 15 years. Um, I, I don't think it was bad. Like, I think it was fun. I, I I remember being very happy with it, but I also remember being 14 and there were other things I liked at the time that didn't hold there up. There were, this were, this was definitely a 14 year old movie because it had yeah. Sean William Scott and it had Orlando Jones. I think we all saw it because of that one moment in the trailer, wherever the aliens climbing up his leg, he says, don't take the leg. And then they like, it's heading for his crotch. Take the leg, <laughs> take the leg. <laughs> Yeah. That's such a that's such a fourteen year old joke. Do you, do you know what this movie actually like? When I think of this film, I also think of there was this movie with Ryan Phillippe and uh, uh, Tim Robbins. Are you going to say Eight Legged Freaks? No, Antitrust. Oh, that's what Antitrust, I Antitrust, which was a like really bad sort of. Tim Robbins basically plays Bill Gates, <laughs> and it's uh, they, there was actually a movie that came out a couple years ago that seemed like the same thing, where it's like, oh, there's a. Uh, there's little he's the this tech genius isn't as good as you think he's actually a bad guy and i saw that movie in theaters as well and it, it like for some reason they're they're melded in my mind of like i maybe i didn't make the greatest decisions in what i wanted to see on a weekend as a as a middle schooler <laughs> um yeah i i don't remember that but uh, we've discussed this before is 99 2000 2001 very strange time yeah you know, as far as movies are concerned yeah. So if you ever have 101 minutes and you want to go and watch something that we all saw when we were 14, definitely, definitely check out Evolution. Where where can we find this? Okay. Uh, Mississippi Burning, you can't stream anywhere. You can't even pay to rent it online, but you can buy it on Amazon. Um, and okay. Evolution, you can rent it on YouTube, iTunes, all the usual places. Or for both of these, you can rent them at your local public library. It's a good recommendation. Or Hollywood Video. I was about to say, your local public library is not Hollywood Video, so don't do that. <laughs> your local public video library, Hollywood Video. War Starts at Midnight brought to you by Hollywood Video. <laughs> okay, well, for my recommendation, I've got – we're on sort of the same wavelength with your Mississippi Burning recommendation. Um, I've got a recommendation. It's a new documentary that recently came out on Netflix. It's called 13th, which is a reference to the 13th Amendment, directed by Ava DuVernay, who did Selma um, a couple years back. And it is um, – to say it's about the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment that abolished slavery, would be um, wrong. It's It's a – um, it's about a lot of things. It's about, uh, systemic racism. It's about, um, it's, it spends most of its time, um, kind of focused on, uh, the progress of, uh, imprisoning, um, minorities and specifically African Americans, but, um, beyond that a little bit as well. And it's, it's a movie. It's definitely the type of documentary that has a very clear voice. And I imagine there are some people who are going to watch this. Uh, this film and um, it it might be a little strong for them, but I think, I think it's a wonderful exploration of um, sort of this discussion that we've been having in the culture 
lately with, you know, with everything from police brutality in um, seemingly constantly in the uh, the news cycles with something like uh, OJ Made in America, which ESPN put out earlier this year. Um, it it kind of has that same sort of structure where it's it's hard to nail down in a blurb exactly what this film is about. Um, but it's it's very rich. It's very dense. I actually I've seen it once. I want to go back and watch it again just to kind of dive back into um, everything that it explores. Um, I, I think it merits that. Um, and also it's really, you know, I didn't care that much for Selma. Um, I, I thought it was okay. I thought it was a little manipulative for me in, in certain places, like particularly I, and, and honestly it's, it's the way it opened up. Like I, I felt like it was a little much with like the girls flying through the air in slow motion with, uh, with the bomb going off, um, and, and that sort of thing. But, um, I really, really enjoy this, this movie. And I know it's, you know, it's a documentary, so it's kind of apples and oranges to compare it to, uh, her, her last film, which was a narrative film, but, um, it's, it's very, uh, interestingly shot. The, a lot of the interviews, the, the composition is, is, uh, sort of, it's beautiful, but it's not composed as you would typically, uh, think like there's a lot of headroom and it's, they're kind of putting the, the speaking heads in the, in a kind of lower quadrant. Um, which just makes it feel sort of fresh and interesting and, and engaging. And then the, there's a lot of sort of minimal but very effective uh, motion graphics that go along with statistics and that sort of thing um, that uh, is very, very well made, very uh, beautiful and, and nicely uh, constructed. So it's it's a, a documentary that, you know, a lot of times you'll get documentaries that are like great content, but sort of boring to watch. I think this is pretty engaging um, as well as being uh, just chock full of um, ideas and thoughts and um, a lot to chew on. So that's 13th. It's only available from what I understand on Netflix. This is a like Netflix original documentary. Um, check it out there. It's great. Watch it once or twice or eight times. You know, Chris, this sounds like a magnificent choice. Really beautiful. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing it, but it doesn't sound like there's any giant monsters in it. <laughs> no, <laughs> you did not no, mention giant monsters no, once. No. Well, I mean, I, someone, someone could make the, the argument that there are some giant monsters in, you know, when they get in talking about some political moves that were made and that's, and that's another thing that I think is interesting. They, um, they, they do a good job of looking at obviously with, with what they're talking about, you're going to get Ronald Reagan as a, a bit of a villain in some of some of the ways, uh, you know, the laws that he um, he introduced or passed or that sort of thing. But it's it's also, you know, it looks at stuff, the things that Bill Clinton passed and it looks at, you know, on the whole, like things, people who had best intentions and how those best intentions failed us. Um, so, yeah, d- no, no giant monsters, but definitely, uh, definitely a good watch. Interesting. Can we can we just talk about how? Just real quick, how Netflix has done such good things with their original content. It's I, I think it's because they have so much though. There's I, I would say for every like twenty things they put out, there's one or two that I'm like, oh, that looks great. And then there's there's another ten or so that I could care less about. It so. it very easily to me could have been like a oh, it's just a made for TV type thing. But to me, Netflix is like a notch above that. I do not I don't think everything is great. But there's enough good things that I consider it. That 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 is true, and it it has at least the stuff that I've I've watched. It doesn't have the feel of I think some of the uh, Amazon original shows feel mm-hmm. like they're you know they're not quite lifetimey, but they're like a little lesser. 
quality. They're just trying to meet a quota. Yeah. Whereas Netflix really does. They, they make things that feel like they are part of the medium, be it a TV show feels like mm-hmm. a, you know, a paid or uh, extended cable TV show. A movie feels like a real movie that you could see in a theater. Right. Um, Okay, might as well close the circle. The reason Netflix has grown the way it has isn't just because they have old movies, but they they produce original content. Yeah. If we wanted Filmstruck to produce original content, just well, you wrote, brainstorm. You know, brainstorm. you wrote you wrote that letter in 2002 that got Godzilla. <laughs> I need so to, what what is the letter? Yeah, what is the letter that clearly, we we're going to write? What original have more content? power than I than I realize. It will have. I, I kind of think what I'd like is a Robert Osborne documentary. With huh. and he hmm. is paired with he is paired with like a Brett Ratner or something like that. <laughs> Wait, what? You you <laughs> pair on. you pair Robert Osborne, who is truly what we all want to be as movie fans mm. and as human beings, and then pair him with a human slug like <laughs> Brett Ratner, <laughs> and that will produce comedy gold. Because I guarantee Robert Osborne is too polite to tear into Brett Ratner, but he's mm-hmm. going he's going to have difficulty so this not is, registering. This is like a one on one conversation between them and then we no, see No, they where just it goes, they just or? hang out. They just do I've things. got a I've got a so better idea, Hunter. Yeah. What if it's it's not a documentary. They just remake old movies with those two as the main characters. So it's some <laughs> like it hot, but with Brett Ratner and Robert Osborne. And they're following Taylor Swift. You know, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not necessarily those guys, but I do like the idea of them just remaking old movies. The point is, is that Filmstruck, in order to really strike, is they're going to have to produce some original content because I don't think, I'm not sure there's a big enough audience of just people like us to pay for that infrastructure. But how how do you build a a network that's like, you love old movies and you love great classics. Now, here's some new movies that are old and great. Wait, what? Well, I, well, it's kind of like a IFC playing a racer. You know what I mean? They just it, they wind up violating their own brand ethos. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think it's I th- I think it's content around what they have. So be it um you know it's the supplementary thing that you go to Criterion for anyway. You know you the reason the reason that I love Criterion releases is one like there's a lot of stuff that you couldn't see otherwise, or all you could get your hands on is a really crummy MGM DVD. Um, so there's, there's that, but then there's also the, you can really dive deep into, um, extra content for the films. And so maybe that's it. Maybe, I mean, maybe that still falls into the problem of only this niche Mm -hmm. is going to, um, is going to get it. But, you know, I don't think they're necessarily going to try to compete with Netflix. They are, they're trying to be sustainable for within their own thing. Well, and maybe what it is, is it's interviews like inside the actor studio style interviews with contemporary filmmakers and actors. Here's my crazy idea. So they have the, the TCM intros in front of some of them. Just make a portal where Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright can get on and upload a video where they're in front of a green screen and the camera spinning, explaining (laughs) why I should be watching these movies. That's all I want. Just let them get on, pick one of the movies, upload a webcam video for all I care. Tell me why I should watch the movie. This is, oh gosh, I would watch, I th- like, this is like those, those Tarantino intros that I watch on YouTube every once in a while. I no, Yeah, I, I, I'd watch that. Exactly. I, I, you need to link in the show notes, the, um, uh, Wong Kar Wai, uh, Chunking Express mm-hmm. intro. I, I feel like, I feel like I have before, but I'll, I'll put it in these as well. Yeah. But yeah, or or uh, like a every frame of painting, maybe do something like that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And and I know actually Criterion has not not from Tony Job, although like Tony Job would be great for some su- supplementary stuff for this. But I his name escapes me now. But it's it's the guy that did uh, Tarantino from below, uh, Wes Anderson from above, 
um, and a, a bunch of other video essays. He's done some stuff for uh, Cartoon Collection and uh, BFI. So that's that's actually a really good. That's where it is. Mm-hmm. It's it's the it's those video essay content pieces. Be a, be, a, that, be a film course that I subscribe to. Here's the great movies. Here's why they're great. Here's why you should watch them. Here's what you can learn from them. Here's a video that explains some great things about some movies, and here's the movies that go with them. And in the process, put hundreds of overpriced film studies departments out of business. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Hunter, you, you got all that? You, you going to draft this letter for us? You know, I'm, I'm typing it up right now, man. Okay. I need to send a thank you note to Criterion Collection, though. It's, it's a couple years too late, but you're, I should do that. All right. Well, that is a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, links to join the Fantasy Movie League, and much more. Or say hello to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it in iTunes or wherever you get the podcast. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who's just hate listening through these credits, go ahead and tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, you can leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. The War Starts at Midnight spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to Bo Jennings and the Tigers for the music on this week's show. Pick up their brand new single and more at bojennings.bandcamp.com. Join us in another fortnight when we'll be joined by special guest Kevin Kissling to review his personal war crime, The Godfather Part 2. And keep an eye on the podcast feed for a special spooky short round review dropping on Halloween. Thanks for listening, folks. Screonk! No, 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 Jake. It doesn't go like that here. Allow me. I have an N64, but I am able to put my Game Boy Advance games on it through an adapter. Will I be able to? Will I be able to play Turner Classic Movies on my Game Boy? Because if I can't, then it's not worth it to me. Well, you you've got a coax uh, input into the the N64, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, then you're good. No, I also think the the subtitle of this has to be, it's Sega Channel for classic movies. That's how they should sell it. That's how they should pitch it.